Well, today we continue our sermon series, You Asked For It. <laughs> and uh, as usual, the, uh, the requester shall be nameless so as to be blameless uh, for all of you. And uh, one of you said, I have never heard a sermon on the book of Revelation. So you asked for it. Now, of course, there's so much going on in these 22 books, uh, 22 books, 22 chapters of the book of Revelation that we can only offer sort of broad brushstrokes and try and get a sense of what it might mean for us today. And so I am reading from Revelation chapter 1, and this is, uh, these are verses 1 through three. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I imagine that almost every one of us at some time or another has seen one of those cartoons. And uh, it always has a man, I don't know why, but it's a man with long hair. And he's usually wearing a robe like Jesus, and he's wearing sandals, and he's carrying a sign, and the sign says, the end is near. And there's always a joke associated with it, like there's a piano falling from a winch over his head. Or the man is walking, the end is near, and there's an open manhole cover that he's about to step into. The, 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 the joke is that the end is near, but it's never exactly what the guy is trying to mean when he says the end is near. And the book of Revelation is actually a little bit like that cartoon. What many people seem to think is meant by the end of end is near is not it at all what the book of Revelation is actually offering to us. You see, Revelation, this word, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And that simply means to show, to uncover. And so our question that we have to take with us today in looking at this book of Revelation is the question of what, what is it trying to show? What is this book trying to uncover for God's faithful people? And the problem here, of course, is that Revelation has been misinterpreted and misunderstood for at least a couple hundred years. Uh, we all know people who take uh, what's in this book and say, oh, it's about Hitler, oh, it's about Russia, oh, it's about China, oh, it's about Israel and Iraq and Iran, and it's all these things, but I'm here to tell you 
that the book of Revelation isn't really somehow a roadmap for us to say, oh, these are the things that are pointing toward the end. It isn't that at all. It is not future prediction. And to see it that way is actually to misunderstand the message of the book of Revelation. So uh, let me begin, first of all, by explaining why this is not prediction of the future. And first of all, we have to understand what prophecy is, okay? Uh, here in, chat, in verse 3, it says the words of prophecy. But if you know anything about the biblical prophets, very seldom is their task or their role to predict the future. Their task almost always is to call God's people to accountability. Think of all those prophets in the Old Testament. Their job is to come to the people and say, look, you're chasing after other gods. Look, you're uh, wanting a human king. You want to follow a human king. You're supposed to be following the one true God. Turn back to the one true God. Keep your eyes fixed on the one true God. Prophecy is about a call to the people to be accountable to the one true living God known in Jesus Christ. So when John starts this letter and says it's prophecy, he's saying, hey, you need people of God to be accountable. You need to be accountable to Jesus who is Lord. But not only that... Here in uh, the fourth, or in the third verse, at the very end, it says, for the time is near. Now listen, if I'm a reader or a hearer, more likely, in the first century, I'm saying, well, of course the time is near. This letter is written probably around the year 90 or 95, and if you think about these Christians, there are still witnesses to Jesus Christ in the flesh. They have their own uh, Coral Mosses and Mary Moores and George Burtons and Stan Funderburgs who say, oh, I remember seeing Jesus. Oh, I remember hearing uh, the Apostle uh, Paul. I remember uh, when uh, the Apostle Peter passed by. These people, Jesus is not some way distant past event. Jesus is a reality that happened not that long ago. And these early Christians, they believe that Jesus is about to return. They believe the end is near. They're living in the midst of heightened anticipation. It may happen tonight, it may happen next week, but surely Jesus is about to return to complete everything. The end is near. We know that. This is not news. Uh, you've probably heard me say before that the early Christians were like uh, children on Christmas Eve. There is this excitement, expectation, anticipation. Something is about to happen. You and I are like those same kids in the middle of the summer. You go up to that child and you, you say, hey, Christmas is only six months away. You better be good. And they're going to give you a raspberry. They don't care. They have no sense of anticipation of what's about to happen uh, when it's six months away. And you and I are like, you know, those kids in the middle of summer. We're not like the early Christians. 
Uh, I, I have to be honest, for as faithful as I try to be to the gospel, I don't go to bed at night thinking tonight is the night Jesus returns. I don't walk through each day looking in the sky, believing I'm about to see Jesus come back and finish what he began. I mean, I, uh, to, to be honest, I think the only time we do that is if we think we're not going to live through the night. And then we're anticipating we might see Jesus. Otherwise, I would be surprised if any one of us is walking through our day looking for Jesus to return. But those early Christians already were doing that. They knew the end was near. But there's a third thing here. You know that I, if, you, if you do any Bible study with me, you know I'm always going to say, whatever you're reading, you need to bump it up against Jesus. You need to see what Jesus' teachings say, what his life says, what are his words, because Jesus, you want to talk about revelation? There it is. It's in Jesus Christ. That's where we have the truest, greatest revelation of God. And so what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says if you go to Matthew 12 and 16, you get Pharisees and scribes who are saying to Jesus, hey, we want a sign. And Jesus says, hey, he, he, he's actually a little miffed if you read that, you know. It, it, like, he's not, he's not happy they've asked him that. And, and he basically says, listen, he, he, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now, if you read these passages, it becomes very clear, I think, what he means by the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and then he got spit out to have life again. Jesus is in the belly of the grave for three days, then he rises again to life. Jesus is saying the only sign you need is the resurrection. I have overcome the grave. Why are you looking for anything other than the one sign that proves I have overcome the world? I am the Lord. I am the one you are looking for. The only sign you need is me and my resurrection to life. That's it. No other sign is going to be given. And so we get this very clear picture that in the early church, they understand that prophecy is about a call to accountability. They understand that the end is near. They're not, they're not looking for some distant future thing. And then Jesus says, the sign is my resurrection. And in fact, stop in a minute and think about why Jesus says this. If you or I need to see all the signs that the end is near so that we might believe that's fear, that's not faith. And perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is saying you don't need to frighten people into thinking it's the end of times. All you need to do is believe in the resurrection to life. That's who I am. I am a God of life. So we have this very clear picture of what was going on to begin with and that it wasn't some sort of future prediction. But then you have to say, but why all these weird images and symbols? I mean, this book is filled with weird stuff. 
It's got beasts and it's got dragons. You know, it's got horses of the apocalypse. Apocalypse, unveiling, uncovering. It's got lampstands and bowls and it goes, it swings between heaven and earth and up and, and there's all this weird stuff going on. Why is that? Well, if it's the year 90 or 95, these Christians are living under Roman rule. Uh, there's this thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the reason there is peace across the land is because uh, the Romans can, can rule with pretty much an iron fist. They can keep their thumb on the necks of the people and they can put down any kind of uprising that happens. So there's peace, but it's peace through force. And yet a lot of people begin to worship the emperor as a god. I mean, well, why not? I mean, if you, if you are a pagan and you worship all kinds of gods, why not throw the emperor into that mix? And so they're saying Caesar is Lord. But the Christians don't want to say Caesar is Lord. Jesus made it clear you can't serve two masters. You can't serve Caesar or any human political figure. You can't serve the state and serve Jesus Christ. You can't have any other gods. It's clear. Jesus tells us that. The Ten Commandments tell us that. There's only one God. This book of Revelation keeps saying Jesus is Lord, and you shall have no other God. And so they're in a very precarious position. If I say Caesar is Lord, I've abandoned my faith in Jesus Christ. If I don't say Caesar is Lord, I may be killed. Hmm. Hmm. You and I have no sense of this. You and I have never lived in a time when we are persecuted for our faith, when we can't simply take our faith for granted. I mean, we don't give it a second thought that we can come and go from church. This pandemic is the first time we've ever felt any kind of restrictions on freely worshiping. We have no idea what it would be if we were to say, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is Lord at the risk of our life. I don't know if I could be faithful if it meant that I might be taken and, and hung up to, to die. It's a precarious time to be a Christian. It won't be until the fourth century under Constantine that that they begin to tolerate Christians, and in fact, Constantine becomes the first Christian, which is how uh, Rome, Italy, becomes the center of that Roman Catholic Church from which we originate. And so, if you are a Christian facing this kind of danger in claiming that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, you're going to write this book in language where when it's read in the churches, you can say, oh, this isn't about the earth. This is about spiritual warfare. 
So when it talks about the beast, it's going to talk about Rome. All of the language is pointing toward the threats to those people in that time in the first century. They understood what the language was. And in the midst of this, there is one message repeated over and over again. It is, worthy is the Lamb, Jesus is Lord, Worthy is the Lamb. Jesus is Lord. And so, hold on. Endure, persevere. Whatever you are going through, Jesus has already overcome the world and he promises you life, real life. Jesus is Lord. It is a message that continues to ring true today. That whatever it is we may be facing, whatever our own Rome might be, Jesus is Lord. And the resurrection is still the sign. So, pandemic got you down? Jesus is Lord. Having trouble at work or with your family? Jesus is Lord. Afraid of what might happen with the government? Jesus is Lord. Whatever we are facing, whatever we are going through, whether in the first century or the 21st century, Jesus is Lord and his resurrection is still true. Some might say that if we are thinking in these terms, it might lead us to be a little bit passive, right? That whatever's happening, what, if there's injustice, if there's terrible things, then all we do is, oh, Jesus is Lord and walk away. But no, nope, actually. You know, the truth of the matter is to say that Jesus is Lord means to live our lives in a certain way means to bear witness to the living Christ all the time through our words and through our deeds to show the world again and again where we put our faith, where we put our hope, where we put our life. That we proclaim Jesus is Lord and no one and nothing else could ever bring the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the new creation to earth. Are you waiting for a, a politician to bring the kingdom of God to earth? <laughs> Only Jesus can do that. Do you think that there's some institution or some organization that can bring the kingdom of God to earth? No, only Jesus can do that. But here's the, here's the trick. You and I, we are the body of Christ in the world. We are the visible sign of Jesus Christ in this world. Everything we do, everything we say, should bear witness to the claim that Jesus is Lord. Are we building relationships and creating unity? Are we showing love and compassion? Are we hoping? Are we encouraged? Are we helping others? These are the witness to those words, Jesus is Lord. 
And so we should be asking ourselves all the time, is, is my social media proclaiming Jesus as Lord? Is my uh, uh, trip to the grocery store proclaiming Jesus as Lord? Is my working world proclaiming Jesus as Lord? Is my time in the church proclaiming Jesus as Lord? That is the claim of this book of Revelation. And in many ways, if you stop and Think about it. This word becomes the last word of the Bible. The end is near. Yeah, the end of the Bible. But the last word that is given to us is the word of hope and endurance and perseverance. This world is not what it should be but it will be for one reason only, because Jesus is Lord. And in that, we can place our hope, our faith, and our love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.